I'm Aiden Flax Clark, and you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast. The president of our library, Tony Marks, does a series of programs here where he brings together people from the left and the right to debate hot button political issues. He had another one recently about the future for democracy that featured Jonah Goldberg and Peter Beinart. Peter Beinart writes on politics for The Atlantic and The Forward, and Jonah Goldberg is an editor at National Review, and he's also the author of the new book, Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. So the thing that was really great about this conversation is that Peter and Jonah are friends, and it showed when they talked. They stand on different sides of the political aisle, they disagree with each other, but they like each other which makes for the kind of political discussion I would hope everyone would have all the time. So here's library president, Tony Marks. Tonight we focus on the future of democracy, a small topic, a topic that this library and all libraries have much invested in. We consider ourselves cornerstones, foundational to the democracy, to informing the citizenry. Our speakers, uh, Jonah Goldberg, He's a senior editor at the National Review and fellow at the National Review Institute, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, contributor to USA Today and Fox News, the author, most recently, of Suicide of the West, The Tyranny of Clichés and Liberal Fascism. Uh, Peter Beinert is associate professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. He's a contributor to The Atlantic, senior columnist at The Forward, CNN political commentator, so CNN and Fox, those are different, right? They are. Yeah. The um, (laughs) former editor of The New Republic, an author of The Good Fight, The Icarus Syndrome, and The Crisis of Zion. So fabulous folks to have with us this evening. Why don't we dive in? Um, And maybe, Joan, I'll ask you to start. Is democracy failing? And if so, why? Sure. Uh, so first of all, thanks to everybody for having me here. Thank you for having me here. It's great. Um, it's been a long, I grew up in New York City, so it's kind of cool to be behind scenes here. Um, I snuck away earlier and I got that Jefferson Declaration and I put lemon juice on the back because uh, <laughs> Nicolas Cage told me there was a secret message on it. Um, uh, I do think democracy is in trouble. Um, I do think democracy is in, in, in peril, in part because democracy, much like capitalism, uh, depends on values that it can't create and cannot restore once lost. Um, that the, the, the uh, you know, people are talking, I get asked all the time, what would William, would William F. Buckley recognize today's Republican Party? And my standard, a little unfair response is, well, look, you know, Charlton Heston recognized the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. Um, <laughs> that's not necessarily, you know, a great thing. Um, part of my argument in this, in my book is that um, I think most of our problems are actually upstream of Washington, and they're upstream of our politics, and our politics reflects those problems. It also makes those problems worse, right? There's this line in Orwell where Orwell says, a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. Our politics are in such bad shape because of problems in our society, and our society's problems are worse because our politics are in such bad shape. It's a catalytic thing. And so part of, I think, one of the things that's driving the problem is a breakdown in civil society. Um, And what I mean by that, I mean the mediating institutions that give people meaning, the mediating institutions that give people a sense of belonging in the world and a sense of of understanding of of their place in it. Uh, One of my favorite intellectuals, Hannah Arendt, used to say that 
Every generation, Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children, <laughs> right? And so one, I think one of the key conservative insights is that there is no such thing as a, that, 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 that human nature has no history. Someone born today has the exact same basic programming that someone born 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago had. What changes and what makes a civilization possible are the institutions, values, customs, mores, and expectations that we load in on top of the basic programming of human nature. And, uh, and I think that those mechanisms, those institutions are in trouble. Family breakdown is a major issue. We can go through all the statistics if you, if you want. Um, civil society is, has real problems in general. Um, there's a friendship crisis in this country. The number of people, the number of friends that people report having today has fallen almost in half in the last 10 years or so. And I think one of the things that accelerates this problem are, is social media, particularly Facebook, which essentially, um, as, as, and, and I should also say that large, large amounts of immigration are, have, have impacts on civil society as well. This is not an argument about nativism or bigotry or anything like that. I very much am a squish on a lot of the immigration issues. But you know, Robert Putnam at Harvard University, he found that, and the, and the political science is generally settled on this, that large waves of immigration are that are difficult to sort of uh, digest create populist backlashes. And one of the reasons they create populist backlashes is that people retreat from civil society. They feel like they're, they're, they're losing control of their community. They're losing their sense of attachment to their community. And instead of adjudicate interpersonal problems with each other, they instead retreat to their homes. They retreat to places like Facebook. Facebook is wonderful for keeping in contact with your old friends. It's not very good for making new friends. And one of the things that it does is it offers all sorts of confirmation bias of some of your most passionate and worst ideas. And, um, and so what happens is people think that they can replace real communities with virtual communities. And they end up watching politics as a spectator sport at the national level um, as if it's entertainment. And when we watch things as entertainment, our brain doesn't process that this is fake or entertainment. Our brain simply says, I'm going to root for my team, I'm going to root for my heroes, I'm going to root against the villains and the other team. And it encourages this tribal mindset. And I think that there are all sorts of structural reasons why democracy has problems, and talking about primaries and the like, which I think Peter and I would probably agree on. Um, but I think this fundamental thing that is, that is at the heart of our problems has to do with the erosion of civil society, the erosion of the family, and, the, and since we are hardwired to search for meaning anyway, because of a, it's an evolutionary adaptation. We don't cease to look for meaning when we don't get it from traditional sources. We start looking for it in other places like politics. And when we start doing that with politics, politics becomes much more tribal. So uh, that sounded to me, and from what I read as well, like a culture-based argument. Mm -hmm. um, not so different from uh, David Brooks's argument in terms of the loss of institutions and civil society to there's a lot of overlap. Prepare us yeah. uh, for that. So, um, Peter, is democracy in peril, and is it for the reasons Jonah said? Or for other reasons. Or for other reasons, <laughs> yes. Um, Add to I the mean, mix. I, I think the first thing I would say when we talk about democracy being in peril is that, to remember that democracy is a specific thing. It's not just everything we like, right? We in America pay lip service to democracy, but actually there are also lots of ways in which we don't like democracy, right? I mean, if Donald Trump were tomorrow saying, to say, I demand that all the Supreme Court justices in the United States stand for, for re-election, right? People would freak out as if that was a, a 
extremely dangerous assault on, on our system of government. It would be, but it would actually make it more democratic, right? The Supreme Court is very undemocratic, right? You basically, the president chooses the person they can stay there for life, whether the people like it or not, right? Democracy means the rule of the people, right? That is an important value, but it's not the only value in our political system at all. And it's, it's in great conflict and tension. The Bill of Rights, right? is pretty undemocratic. It basically says there are all these rights that you have, and even if most of the people don't like it, we're gonna make it really, really, really difficult for them to do anything about that. So when I try to think about the kind of, the moment we're in and, and where, the, where the most disturbing things are, I don't think they're all necessarily about a threat to democracy. I think they're partly about threats to other things that are also really important. So I do think there is, I, I think the threat to democracy, and this is gonna sound like a a very partisan point, but um, I'll say it anyway, um, as, a, as a liberal, is I don't think it started with Donald Trump, but I do think um, he's part of it, which is that I think that the Republican Party has a massive demographic problem, which, is that, which they've realized, right, which is that the country is moving in a direction demographically that potentially is potentially an extinction level event for a party that's base is old white people, right? Um, and the Republican Party has responded to that, but this didn't start with Trump, I think, with various mechanisms that try to make it harder, right, for some of those people um, to, who would not vote Republican to vote, right? And I think you've seen this in the increase in efforts at various laws to try to restrict, to make it harder for poor people and African Americans to vote. And I do think that what you've seen with Trump is, um, I think we see a potentially an escalation of that with what I think is a really important and I think still somewhat undercovered issue, which is what Trump is gonna to try to do to the census. Um, because I think that there is an effort by the Justice Department and Trump administration to basically try to put an immigration, a, a citizenship question on the census, which will have the effect, whether it's intended or not, which will have the effect of meaning that fewer Latinos in particular actually of comply with the census, which will actually have the effect of in things like redistricting and in a whole series of other ways, basically meaning that the, the electorate will become less and less representative of the population. And we already have this kind of quite massive divergence that the, the, the population is much more demo, democratic and democratic party than the electorate is, right? Um, and I think the Republican Party has taken some measures to try to make sure that basically the electorate, does, the, that the population does not catch up to the electorate. And I think that is a, that's a problem with democracy. But I think that, that, but I also think that a lot of the problems that we see um, are not really about democracy, but they're about the rule of law. Um, which is to say, I think that, you know, um, that the things that worry me the most about the Trump administration are his sense that the government is a kind of personal fiefdom of his, everybody works for him, and should do whatever he wants, whether in fact there are longstanding norms or even laws that are supposed to prevent them from doing it. And I think that is a problem, and I think that's a problem that, um, and I know there are a lot of conservatives who believe that started, you know, that, 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 that started with Barack Obama with some of his executive actions. I do think it's a problem that, that, that is bigger than the United States. I mean, even if you look at China, for instance, what's interesting about China is, right, China was never a democracy, it was always authoritarian. But it did have, to some, in, in some respects, actually a kind of rule of law. It was a very unusual authoritarian system in that they told the dictator, 
he had to leave after a certain point, right? And for quite a long period of time, right, it had actually been following that system. So there, even in this authoritarian system, there were rules and norms that transcended the ambitions of an individual, right? And now we've seen with Xi that that's been thrown overboard. So I think that's an example of the way in which you can have a kind of an undermining of the rule of law, even in an authoritarian, non-democratic system. Um, uh, you know, if you look at someone like Duterte in the Philippines, right? I don't think it's fair to say he's not democratic, right? I mean, he has a lot of support. Um, but what he's done is a massive violation of the rule of law in terms of violations of civil liberties. And I think that's partly because, and this is where I'll end, that I think for a variety of reasons, a lot of the expectations that people had during this massive wave of democratization that we saw in the 80s of 90s about what it would bring to ordinary people has not been met in various ways. And, there, and the response to that has been a populism which has democratic aspects, but basically says, I'm going to meet your needs by tearing down these corrupt institutions that are actually the problem. And that's, I think, what we see with Trump, but I think we see that in other parts of the world as well. So, uh, Peter, if I heard that right, well, I, and actually I think you, you both agree that both variables, both issues are relevant. So I would describe yours as largely a, a sort of formal political uh, or more political uh, determinant. And it fits with, uh, Jonah, with your argument about the balance between individual and government mm -hmm. going awry. I mean, reading both of your work, and uh, you certainly have the sense that many Americans believe that politicians have become a self-serving group and self-perpetuating group, that they are not delivering solutions, they're not even reflecting the preferences necessarily of the company, uh, of the country, and that that is camouflaged by noise, by generating noise, particularly around important but not necessarily essential issues that grab all the attention. So, Okay, we've got two big arguments on the table. There's a third that neither of you went to, but you, I guess you both thought you had to choose one. The, uh, <laughs> and that is uh, the economy, um, inequality in particular. So there's a third argument out there that says, well, you could, there's a, you know, an old argument that says, you know, this is what, how capitalism and democracy end together. Um, but there's a more modern argument that Artificial intelligence, perhaps some degree of trade, depends on who you ask, um, has produced such a massive inequality that the inequality itself has led to so many Americans losing faith um, that they will be all right or that their families will be all right. Huge sections of the country that feel they have been abandoned, if not ridiculed, um, and certainly Mr. Trump you know, uh, worked on that. There's a, another argument I'll just signal, we'll have an event on this later. Steve Brill has a new book coming out that argues that meritocracy itself created the inequality because the more meritocratic rulers used their power um, and intelligence to lock in their own position. So there is a counter argument that says actually it's the economy, not culture, not politics that drives the dislocation in the other two realms. What do you make of that as a, as a possible yeah, so I, I am more skeptical of the economic explanation. I certainly think that inequality is a problem. Um, 
but not necessarily for the reasons that a lot of other people think inequality is a problem. Uh, a big part of my argument is, is that what civilizations do is they, they can't get, you know, as the Founding Fathers would put it, they, they, you can't get rid of human nature, but you channel it in productive directions. That you take, um, you create institutions, rules, norms, mechanisms. That's what civilizations are, just basically the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and the rules that we think that we're supposed to follow. And the constant threat to that is human nature. Because human nature wants to go as the crow flies towards what it wants. Donald Trump, we think the behavior that Peter is describing about surrounding himself with cronies and loyalists is corrupt. And in a sense, it is corrupt. But it is also profoundly natural. Right? And this is one of the things that's very difficult when you, do, when you talk to development people about, say, Afghanistan. And the locals there will say, well, you know, you're telling us that we need to have open bidding and merit-based contracts. And, and they'll say, we've done politics like this for a thousand years. And they're right, because if you read people like Fukuyama, it's absolutely true that reciprocity, um, kin bias, nepotism, these things are natural. Advanced civilizations try to hold those things in check. And so one of the problems with Donald Trump is he's actually a very natural form of leader, right? He's like basically a tribal big man. The, similarly with inequality, there is a huge bias in human nature that the sociobiologists and evolutionary psychologists write a great deal about, about this notion of being um, either a shirker, right? That we have an inherent bias against people who don't seem to be contributing enough to the tribe, or um, somebody who's taking too much from the tribe, because in, the, in our natural evolutionary environment is profoundly egalitarian and, and it may not be um, completely horizontal, but it is basically because everyone's supposed to pull their own weight and contribute. And so we have this intense dislike of gross distortions in the allocations of resources. The problem with, my, with, with the inequality argument, as far as I am concerned, is that certainly in the macro sense, right, um, Everyone's getting richer. Everyone's getting richer. We are right now living in a moment of the greatest alleviation of material poverty in all of human history, where hundreds of millions of people are being lifted out of poverty in Asia and Africa and all the rest. Are there people who are getting much richer at a faster rate in those countries than the poor people? Yeah. That's a much better problem to have than everybody staying poor. And so, some, my argument would be that- Maybe, maybe not politically. But so not that, politically, that's right. right. So that's why I think the political and cultural issue comes out of the inequality because there is this seething resentment that says, you're getting so much, yeah, I may have $100 in my pocket, but you have a million dollars in your pocket, and that feels unfair. And there's that sense of unfairness and the sense of the, of the sort of resentment that is cultivated across the political spectrum these days. It is amazing. There is no demographic in America that doesn't think it's a persecuted group anymore. Like even the white working class thinks they're persecuted, the rich think they're persecuted, the poor think they're, blacks, gays, Jews, everybody thinks they're persecuted, you know? And it's like, someone's gotta think things are going well for them. But even, even the President of the United States really thinks he's being persecuted. Right? Richard Sennett wrote about the culture of victimhood. Uh, it's, that's not new. No, I agree, I, I wanna but it's getting worse. I wanna ask you one, stick with you for one sec. You write about how ingratitude right. is part of the problem here. But if you are feeling like every, the, the rich are getting away from you, that the politicians are ignoring you, that your family and community are falling apart and don't have a future, why would you expect people to feel grateful? Oh, it's, 
it's it's hard, you know. But one of the like you, before you talked about all the wonderful things that the that this library does and the important role that libraries have. Which I completely I, I could go on longer. I, I, I have every confidence. <laughs> I could talk much longer about my book too. Um, but one of the reasons why you do that is you feel like you need to actually make the case for this institution that matters to you so much, right? So much of the teaching that we do in terms of or not teaching, the unteaching that we do in terms of civics, in terms of uh, the history, the story of America is teaching only sort of basically the Howard Zinn version of the story about all the terrible things in our past, all the terrible roles. Now the argument is not sort of um, this argument that I make that you know, the, the, the great thing about the American founding wasn't that it was perfect when it was founding, is that it laid down this argument about inclusiveness that became that Abraham Lincoln picked up and then Martin Luther King carried out to its logical extension and is still going forward to this day about how the system should work for everybody and that our hypocrisy actually points to our ideals. Now there's an argument that basically says we've got to get rid of the ideals themselves because they are entirely suspect. And we, are, we teach almost relentlessly from the popular culture this idea that it's a bad country, that we shouldn't, there's nothing to be grateful for, that everyone is trying to get over on everybody else, everyone's being suckered by everybody else, and it should not surprise us that that, that leads to a politics of resentment for everybody. Peter, the economics here, how, how relevant do you think they are? How do they play? Um, well, I think one has to be cautious. I mean, we now have a lot of data about who voted for Trump and who didn't vote for Trump. And I think basically the jury is in that it's pretty overwhelming that, that, the indic that, that, that what um, that people, the, the Trump voters were distinguished not by their economic hardship, but by their cultural anxiety. Um, and in some ways, it's just kind of obvious, right? Because if, you were, if people who had the most economic hardship, right, the most economic anxiety, were, you know, were the Trump voters, he would have, had a, he would have gotten tons of African-American and Latino votes, right? So um, uh, as Ta-Nehisi Coates pointed out, I think he's right, that the, the Trump coalition is white people, right? He wins... Yes, he wins, he wins high school educated white people less, but he wins every single demographic of white people, right? Young white people, rich white people, right? Um, and he wins, so the, I think that, um, and I think this is true by and large, I think in Europe too, that I think that immigration and the fear of cultural demographic change, I think is the single biggest driver of the right-wing populist phenomenon that we're seeing. Um, that's not to say, uh, because we're also seeing it in countries that are significantly less unequal than the United States. Um, I do think, though, that um, where inequality really matters is one of the ways, one of the reasons it matters is, is it's an effect on the political system, which is when you have so much wealth in the hands of a relatively small people, I think it just makes it easier for them essentially to buy elements of the government. Um, and I think that has happened to significant degrees, and I think it just makes it very difficult for the government to solve problems in a way that would actually help people, and I think that leads to greater and greater discontent with government, the sense the government's not getting anything done, which I think actually leads, creates an opening for both left-wing and right-wing populism because of the sense that the government is not actually solving problems that people genuinely face in, the, in, in their lives. Um, I, I guess I would just add, in you know, response to Jonah's point, I. I'm not necessarily sure that I see this narrative that he feels is kind of dominant of, uh, 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 this narrative of kind of the United States ideals are really not worth anything, not worth very much as, as dominant as he suggests they are. I mean, to me, we have two 
different kind of warring narratives. I mean, the, the mainstream progressive narrative, which is, I think was Obama's narrative, which was basically that the America is a, American history is a series of struggles to become better uh, and to become more fully realize our ideals, but that there's no, you know, and that we have to keep struggling because kind of we have these racist and, you know, and, and bigoted forces within us and in our history, we always have to struggle to overcome them. And I think that um, it was a kind of progressive, you know, and Obama kind of think that the natural arc was in that direction. And what I see the Trump narrative is not people who don't think America was, American ideals were ever good. It seems to me they have a vision that America was great, you know, in the mythic 50s or the mythic 80s. And there was something incredibly precious going on there, but that we've periods lost Periods of it. growth, periods of growth, 50s and 80s, right? Periods of growth, periods where there were many fewer immigrants, where women were in a more subordinate position, where LGBT, I mean, a whole series of things, right? Right, also less economic competition from China, but that basically we need to get back to that somehow. So I don't necessarily know that I feel like, is the way I see these two dominant narratives, either dominant narrative of the right or left is saying that there was no, uh, you know, one sees it in the rearview mirror, one aspires to it, although maybe, is, maybe focuses on how difficult it can be to achieve, but I don't necessarily know that I see this dominant narrative of saying that basically, like, you know, there's not really much in the American uh, experiment to really, to, well, to value. First of all, I, I highly... I'm going to be exaggerating a little bit. Yeah, no, point. I understand. And, you know, and, 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 and we all know there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that Peter's wrong, but... Um, uh, no, but I think you just need to spend a lot more time talking to guys with MAGA hats and debating them about Trump which I do for reasons having to do with the original sin. But um, the, you know, for example, there is an argument that I have to fight back on almost every single day with people on Twitter and in email and whatnot who will tell me that such and such a policy, such and such an action is justified solely because it makes liberals angry, <laughs> right? And, um, and I, I call in the book ecstatic schadenfreude. Right, and in, um, and and you find it. I think you also find it certainly in Twitter, right, and certainly in social media. You'll find it almost the exact same thing on the left, right? Like it's worth sort of dragging politics in the Oscars just to give Mike Pence a sad, right, or to make fun of Mike Pence's daughter who's doing a children's book for charity, right? There is enormous amount of hammer and tongs, culture war stuff going on. You know, what I have a poster up in my house of my wife got a. New Yorker cartoon, blown up. It's my favorite New Yorker cartoon, and it's got two dogs sitting at a bar uh, drinking martinis, and one dog says to the other dog, you know, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail, <laughs> right? And that's a big part of our politics these days. And, um, and I do think, and so, but there are also all sorts of narratives on the right. You know, Michael Anton, who just recently left the National Security Council, wrote this famous essay called The Flight 93 Election, where he basically said, you know, America was doomed if Hillary wins. Um, Rush Limbaugh read it in its entirety on air. Uh, Sean Hannity boiled it down to a bumper sticker, and he would begin his radio show by saying, we're one election away of deciding whether or not this nation survives, right? And um, I would have online debates with Anton back when he was hiding behind a pseudonym, and, uh, and I would say, look, you know, I don't, this is around the time when Trump was attacking the, the judge, calling him a Mexican judge. He was an American judge of Mexican descent. You know, So-called judge. Right. But you sort of have to sort of explain <laughs> it in a weird way, right? And, um, 
and so it's talking about how Mexicans are rapists and all this kind of stuff. And I said, look, this is, this is poisonous right-wing identity politics, right? And part of the argument that I think that decent conservatives, have, serious conservatives, intellectual conservatives have been making for the last 30, 40 years is that, this is con that identity politics of the left are contrary to the foundational principles of this country. It shouldn't be okay for the right to do it too. Particularly when the right does it, it comes across essentially as a slur, right? And, and bigotry. At least when the left does it, it's sort of a celebratory thing about differences. It's not saying that, you know, you know although a lot of the anti-whiteness study kind of stuff gets into this demonization of white people today too. But anyway, um, you, and Anton's response was, look, your vision of the Martin Luther King notion of uh, judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, and that we judge people on individual merits, that's dead, dead, dead. All that's left now is their identity politics or our identity politics, and it's just a fight about who's going to win. And Donald Trump, you know, look, the conservative movement, particularly conservatives in general, should be naturally the ones more inclined to defend things like constitutionalism and the original understanding and all these kinds of things, right? All of that kind of went out the window with Donald Trump where the values that he represented were strength and winning, which are completely amoral values. And you know, I would say, well, he shouldn't be saying this or he shouldn't be saying that. Say, well, but at least he fights. So, so uh, wait, you know, I need so, to- So do rabid wolverines. <laughs> all right. I think I, all I, wolverines, I, 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 they don't have to be rabid. I know. <laughs> so at the risk of having you both turned into wolverines against me, Donald Trump was elected democratically through the rules that we have. Why is it not fair to say, rather than the end of democracy, Donald Trump is what democracy brought us? Yeah, well, look, first of all, I think Peter, I'm going to beat Peter to his own point and say that you're right with the caveat through the rules that that elected him because he actually didn't win the majority of the vote, right? Um, That's why I said it that way. Yeah, and look, so I am not, um, <laughs> I, you know, I called myself a never-Trumper. Um, I'm not one anymore for the simple reason that the guy was elected president. My understanding of what never-Trump meant for me was simply that I wasn't going to vote for the guy, I wasn't going to endorse him, and I wasn't going to become, you know, a party hack and just say what, you know, they expected me to say. You know, one of the most disappointing things about this whole experience has been hearing from so many people who are disappointed in me because I didn't live down to their expectations. And, um, and they just sort of thought, once you got the nomination, I'd be a serviceable, serviceable party hack, like a lot of people did. And um, that all said, um, so I stopped being a never-Trumper because I thought I was meaningless once he was elected president. What I wasn't going to do is lie, right? I was just going to... If he did something good, I would say so. If he did something I, bad. I wasn't asking, actually, about Trump. I'm right, asking no, I, about Trump as a result of democracy rather than a sign yeah, of... Yeah, but look, of, I mean, I, to follow Peter's point, you know, pure democracy is just simply the principle that 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. Um, and, um, and I try to tell people, because I think the resistance types on the left have made fools of themselves and have, are, are the most... If Trump is ever reelected, it's going to be on their backs because of the way they've reacted to Trump. Peter, you want to get in there? I mean, I don't know. The resistance people are also the people who are out there, you know, get, get, creating all this momentum for Democratic candidates in 2018. You know, I mean, it's like the Democratic Party need, needs passion in order to win elections. Um, I, I agree. Yeah, but, I, as but I said, we can agree. Look, Donald Trump is not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, no, but I feel like that's kind of a, I mean, yeah, but I also kind of feel like that's a little bit of a rugged up to you out absurd. I mean, you and I could Google and find people comparing him to Hitler, but I, I, I think that, you know, 
most people I know would say that Hitler was very distinguished in his field and that Donald Trump is not Hitler. But they would say that Donald Trump represents, Donald Trump is challenging norms about the way presidents act vis-a-vis -vis the rule of law in ways that we have not seen. Oh, I agree with uh, that entirely. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, and I really don't know what the long-term effects will be. I mean, you know, I, I worry that, um, that the lesson for Democrats will be essentially, you know, their own version of what you're saying with Michael Anton, which is, heck, you know, um, we're gonna fight fire with fire. Um, and, we're, um, and that's one thing that worries me. It worries me, um, the, the, I, I worry about a generation, I mean, I thought the younger generation of conservatives emerging, you know, were kind of all like, I thought they were kind of like Ron Paul libertarian types. I, I really, and it shows you how out of touch I was, you know what I mean? I really, I really worry about the, I mean, I, I see the effects of the Ted Cruz, Paul, Ryan generation who grew up, grew up with what I think is a somewhat to me a kind of absurd lionization of Ronald Reagan and, and of w how he won the Cold War and how he cut taxes and all that. But like, that's very tame compared to, I mean, I worry about the conservatives, the young people who are basically Tucker Carlson and Coulter junkies, right? Like that's the people they're seeing, right? Like, because that really does seem to me to be basically throwing yourself into a death struggle against the demographic changes in the United States, which is leading, which leads to a dehumanization. And I, you know, and I just, and, and which has become, I think to some degree taken for granted. Like, I mean, just, just like one sentence, like about Mike Pompeo, right? Like who, you know, whatever, maybe not the worst guy in the world, maybe better, better Secretary of State, but like, just to stop that, like Mike Pompeo got an award in 2016 from Act for America run by Brigitte Gabriel, right? And, and I, Brigitte Gabriel's basic view about Muslims is really not very different than David Duke's view about Jews. Basically that they can't be loyal citizens of the United States because they're, they're part of a global conspiracy and their very religious identity is in conflict with the Constitution. I mean like, and that's, that to me, that normalization of that, the fact that you may see Ann Coulter on Fox News more than Jonah Goldberg or George Will, that, and what effect that's gonna have, that really scares me. So how much of this do you also attribute, and it's come up a little bit, to the, the forms of communication that, we, that, that everyone now has at their disposal? The, the end of the sort of reliance on brands that sort of certified truth, the echo chambers, the, the sort of screaming at each other, the, you know, the, the friending of each other in, in the way that that um, contributes to it. How much would you say this is, um, you know, couldn't, that the moment we're in is unimaginable without, Peter, without that tool being unleashed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think it's kind of become a kind of cliche, but I think it's true that people are more segmented geographically, but also virtually, and, and therefore kind of basically subject to massive amounts of kind of micro-targeting that reinforce their own, you know, I mean, I just see it in all phases of my life, right? I used to remember reading, I used to get the newspaper, right, and as a New England Patriots fan, I would basically search through looking for anything they had about the New England Patriots, but I would read about all the other teams and the other sports because that's all I could do. Now I basically just get, all, you know, so I think that's true, and I, I think that institutions that can still bring people together across all kinds of lines, across racial, across demographic lines, but also along ideological lines are really, really important. Um, and I think that um, 
those and I think those institutions have generally become weaker. This kind of sorting has taken place, and I, and I true. I think that's I think that's a problem, and that's you know um, one of the things that I uh, I you know I I really have appreciated over the years about my you know friendship with Jonah and other people, other conservatives, is that there's just something very different about talking about people and talking to people, yeah. you know? And, um, I or, just at, we, or at people. Or at people, right. right. And right. I think the ratio has probably moved more towards in the direction of talking about H and Hence why the library is doing this. The, um, Jonah, let me challenge one part of your argument. Mm -hmm. So your argument is that we have, we, we've lost the solidarity of sort of the nation, if you will, and moved towards this modern return of tribalism. There is a counter argument that says actually nations were forms of tribalism themselves, right? That in one, in one telling, um, that the American nation was literally reconstructed by having whites in the South and the North agree that the one thing they could agree on was that they were racist and that that's what created the possibility of the American nation emerging after the Civil War. There's a similar argument in South Africa, a country I've spent a lot of time in, you know, where the Boers and the, and the, the Afrikaners and the English, after the Boer War, the one thing they could agree on was that they had to keep the majority of the population down, so it was racism. So why is the nation itself, the sort of national democracy unit, also potentially a tribal unit? Yeah, so I, I, I think either I miscommunicated or, or, you or I misread, right? Yeah, because uh, I, am, I am pretty skeptical about nationalism. My view towards nationalism is very much like, a, you know, like a pinch of salt brings out the flavor in the meal, right? I'm sort of like the philosopher Roger Scruton. You need a little nationalism just to have a sense of social solidarity and connectedness, that, that there's something about being born an American, right? I would rather these things be taught in terms of patriotism rather than nationalism. I don't like most of the language of nationalism. But you know, like Thanksgiving is a fundamentally nationalistic holiday. It predates the founding, right? It's about our connection to soil and to God and to family. And there's, it's not commercial, it's not capitalist, and there's a lot to be said for it. And, and um, our friendship with the Native Americans. Yeah, well, there's some, there, at the time, there was something about <laughs> it, right? I'm not sure I completely agree with your narrative that the one thing the North and the South could agree on was that there were racist, I mean, the, it was the South that wanted all, talking about the census, that wanted all slaves to be counted so that they would get better distribution, and it was the North that said, no, 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 right. these people are slaves, you can't do that, and that's why the horrible Three-Fifths Clause was come up with, but there were abolitionists who were trying to get rid of slavery in the North from the beginning. Um, but, so I think there's a, there's a case to be made for a little bit of nationalism, just a pinch, but too much, you ruin the meal, way too much, and it becomes poisonous. All poisons are determined by the dosage, not the substance. And uh, my view is, is that what, while it's good to have a general sense of patriotism about the country, about all these kinds of things, what, people don't live in the United States of America. People live in their communities. People live in their families, in their neighborhoods. Those are the places where they draw meaning from. Those are the places where... Though those have, as Peter said, those have become increasingly sorted geographically sorted. through communication and every and other... they're also becoming thinned out. And I will say, yeah, look, I mean, um, they're, they're, I have some criticisms of Peter's demographic argument, but we'll have to save them for the, another time. Um, but, you know, Barack Obama's vision, which he was very honest about, if you read his second inaugural, he basically reduces the country to two political units, the federal government and the individual. And he says those things that the individual can't do, those things that Julia can't do for herself, the federal government needs to do them. And 
I think I, I'm very smitten with Yuval Levin's book, The Fractured, Fractured Republic, because that's not how it works. That is atomizing. That reduces civil society. That crowds out charities and the little platoons that do all the important work in people's lives and says that if you can't do it for yourself, the federal government will step in. That's the, I, if you're looking for solutions, my answer is about as much localism as the Big daddy is not the solution. Right, a lot of local little daddies. Yeah. You know. So I'm gonna, uh, we're, we're running out of time and I, I, I don't wanna leave us without at least, this series is called The Path Forward and I should say, by the way, Arlie Hochschild, uh, her book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, spoke to many of the issues you, uh, you both were talking about. So what is the path forward? What is the, you've both described a litany of travails and challenges and worse. Um, can you imagine, can you help us imagine what it will look like to find a path that you would each consider more encouraging? John, are you willing to go sure. first? Sure. Um, first of all, I mean, the obvious answer is buy gold. No, um, uh, and support your local library. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, I'll give you the gold afterwards. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't do a whole slew of public policy things in uh, proposals in the book. Um, I think there are some things you could do about fixing the way primaries work and all that kind of stuff. But really, um, the the thing I talk most about is this importance of gratitude of teaching people to just look at. The, the, the bright side of the coin, too, and not just the dark side of everything. But if I had one public policy solution that I think would improve lots of things, it'd be pushing as much power down to the most local level possible. Wouldn't solve everything. There would be abuses. Um, you can't have slavery or Jim Crow. We fought a civil war. We amended the Constitution. That is settled civilizational dogma as far as I'm concerned. But can kids in Portland buy stinky cheese without permission of the FDA? Sure. Um, should more tax dollars come from the communities where they come from? Sure. Will that create problems with public schools? Yeah, but that can be figured out. My point is, is that if you push power down to the most local level possible, first of all, one of the nice things about it is that you know who the powers that be are. You know their names. You see them at the store. You see them at, the kids, at your kid's school. You can hold them more accountable because you know their friends, they know their family, they're part of your life. Um, plus, you still have culture war stuff but the winners would have to look the losers in the eye the next day, right? They would see them at the playground, they would see them at the school, they would see them in the supermarket, and that would breed at least a little humility in people. One of the reasons why our politics is becoming so tribal is because we're basically watching politics like entertainment, we're all looking to Washington to solve all of our problems. And the thing is, Washington can't solve all of our problems. If you give people a sense of empowerment and control over their own lives, they'll stop looking to Washington to solve those problems, and they'll instead look to these institutions that actually provide more meaning and a sense of real solidarity rather than the artificial virtual ones that we're feeding off of these days. John, if you'll let me, I, I, you are presuming, uh, which is I agree with, that you have a vibrant local press that will keep, keep an eye on Going on back to the Tocqueville, that's right? hugely important. I absolutely right. think that's important. That's another problem, but right? If the power, yeah, but if, if the power were local, there would be an interest in the press and, and it would be a business opportunity for journalism to sprout up. Why cover stuff that's local if all it is is about when your dogs are allowed to poop in the park? <laughs> Peter. Uh, you know, I, I think that one of, the most one of the interesting things that's happened in American politics in the Trump era is, we, is in terms of tribe, 
is that we have, there are a group of conservatives um, who have in some ways have become, and I would include Jonah to some degree in this, who've essentially been cut loose some ways, not from the, at least from their, <laughs> from their, from their party, right? Um, uh, and um, I think it's been a real kind of moral and character test for a lot of people. And I think those people who um, at some professional cost on the right, who basically have, have, have been willing to say they think Trump is, a, is dangerous uh, to some degree, I think actually in some ways now represent a new and interesting group of people because they're not actually entirely aligned uh, with, with either of these two. Um, and I think that uh, that gives me to some degree of hope that that, that, that could produce something. I, what I hope I see... Do you um, see a similar trend in the, amongst the Democrats? No. The Democratic Party is actually, I think the left is kind of really much more united now. But I'm not sure that will come in the Kanye West administration. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but I, I think that'll, that's, that's largely a function of not being in power. I mean, I think, that, I, think we will, I think that will start to emerge. What I really, really hope we see, what I think we desperately need to see, is to see, the, is to see two political parties that are not as polarized as they are today around questions of race, identity, and gender. We, we desperately need a Republican Party that has a significant cohort of people of color in it, right? that has women in prominent positions, that has LGBT people in prominent positions. And I, it's up to people like Jonah to figure out a conservatism that can do that. But when we have a conservatism and liberalism that are both that, you know, what's happened in my lifetime is that the parties have become more and more and more sorted in those regards. And I think that's part of what's making the politics. The, the fact that we now have a president who, if someone writes his name on a school locker, that that's a racial epithet, right? That, in, you know, that is a really, really, really deeply disturbing thing. And we need to find a way of reversing that and having a debate about progressive and liberal principles, which are not just expressions of, of, of identity characteristics. And I think that's where I hope we'll get one day. The path forward. Thank you, Peter. Thank you all. That was Peter Beinart, Jonah Goldberg, and Library President Tony Marks. Jonah Goldberg's new book is Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. You can get it at your local NYPL branch, on our app, Simply E, and you can also find Peter Beinart's books at the library. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself.